Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports, informs and embraces the spouses beside the military members by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. Want to join a bank that just gets Defence Life? Defence Bank is one of Australia's largest customer-owned banks. They have 33 on-base branches across Australia, an award-winning banking app that allows you to do all your banking wherever and whenever you want. And with products and services tailored for ADF members and Defence spouses, you'll wonder why you didn't join sooner. Visit defencebank.com.au today and see how easy your banking can be. Welcome to the podcast, Hayley Boswell from Defence Kids and Navy Spouse, Julia Michelle from The Home Post and Army Spouse, and Tanya Attlee from The Raw Psychologist and Air Force Spouse. Over the last few weeks, we've seen parts of Queensland and New South Wales devastated by unprecedented rain and floods. I think a lot of us have watched on in shock and disbelief as the stories and the footage started to filter out. We all sort of started to get a little insight into what those affected were experiencing. As defence partners or someone connected to a defence member, once the gravity of natural disaster or the like has really hit home and we have all sort of started to process it, it's then that our thoughts usually turn to whether the ADF will be involved in the initial help, rescues or ongoing cleanup and recovery in some capacity, because we know that ADF may have involvement at some point. If we can open the discussion about the last week's events and sort of talk about what our sort of initial thoughts and feelings are usually when a natural disaster or world events occur and we start to think about whether the ADF or our own defence members may be involved at some point. I think initially I'd like to say that my heart's go out to those people that have been affected by the floods. From the images that we've seen on TV, it has been absolutely traumatic, I'm sure, for many families. And to watch it from home has been very unsettling and it's affected us all in different ways. And I think from our perspective is that when these incidents happen, it causes anxiety among defence families because we instantly think, are we going to be involved? When are we going? How are we going to get there? And what that means for our defence families. So really, it causes a lot of anxiety and sadness because we don't want these people to experience those disasters. That's not what we want. But at the same time, we also feel pride because we want our member to go over and just to assist them. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal to help people in crisis. And we appreciate that we can help in any way we can. Some of our thoughts might turn to, and we might do this quietly and and within the defence community, because we don't want people to think that we don't want our defence member to go and help and that we're not proud of the ADF and that we don't want the ADF to step up. But we sometimes think, how is this going to impact me? How is this going to impact my family because it's not just that they'll jet off for three days and be back by the weekend. It sometimes, you know, has a huge impact for an ADF family when their defence member is called on to assist in situations like that. I think it really does. And there's overwhelming um, feelings. I think, how do we prepare for this? How do we 
prepare our children for this? How do we prepare our family and friends for this when our member is going into quite often dangerous situations? I mean, not just the floods, um, any dangerous situation. And even with COVID assist going into situations, you know, like that where they could potentially contract COVID, like it's scary. It is scary. And I mean, we do it because, you know, it's what we've chosen to do. Our members chosen to live this lifestyle and we support their lifestyle decisions 100%. But, you know, it, at, at times it is really terrifying. But also we, we want to help as well. You know, that's our way of helping our communities as well is by sending our ADF partner off to help these people in need. It's a family commitment. Julia, do you, do you want to add something? Yeah, I think we see this and immediately we're always empathetic to what they're going through. But your thoughts turn to, in my experience, is that text message he just got our turn has he just been added to that operation how long is that task what do I need to organize how am I going to cope with this is what I'm feeling now grief is it hopelessness is it anxiety and I think in recent years we've been living with such a high level of anxiety because we've been on back-to-back taskings and operations so now it's a little bit different to how it was five years ago for me and my immediate reactions then my immediate reactions now are heavily around anxiety when somebody says 21 days that they're going on a tasking for that's not a small insignificant thing in my life anymore whereas sometimes that would be But in recent years, because of the level of commitment we've been asked to give to all sorts of operations, the repercussions that that has had for our longer isolation, our separations that have been longer than deployments due to COVID and borders and all other kinds of issues. And then you're always got in your back of your mind what danger they're up against too. So here we started hearing about mosquitoes so suddenly we had floods we had mosquitoes we're hearing tragic news about people being affected by the mosquitoes we're hearing about infections in cuts and we're going well we've just sent our people to do that so we're empathetic for the people who are already there facing that threat but we're already at a level of anxiety and then that gets next level and I think a lot of the time we don't know how to ask for help or how to identify that we're not coping and then we've got other issues in our community such as people won't pick up the phone and ask for help from a service because they think well if I reach out and say I'm not coping I need help with my anxiety they're going to be met with well there's currently a two-month wait we'll get back to you then. And I think maybe also it's just expected that we will cope with the next thing and we are resilient and we're we're used to this this is the life that we live so it's just another thing that we just need to you know pull our socks up and deal with and so that if we do voice that concern or or we do have thoughts and feelings that aren't just I'm so proud off you go see you when you get home kind of thing that sometimes it's met with well the supports and services that exist don't actually know how to cope with that because we're supposed to be resilient and then when we do reach out for the supports and services there's not necessarily anything therefore hello I'm calling because my husband or my partner or my girlfriend or whoever the defense member is has been called away on their fifth assist and now I need help 
So Tanya, what are some of the thoughts and feelings defence partners or those close to a defence member might have when they realise that an ADF member or the ADF is possibly going to be involved in a situation that is sometimes dangerous and really uncertain? Like what's the sort of, you know, roller coaster that people can generally go on when, when they're in that situation? Yeah, I think Julia and Hayley covered it really well in terms of the actual feelings that we get and also the thoughts side of things. You know, I think you both highlighted two really important both one in action and one a feeling, one being that anxiety, so that kind of stress that comes up, you know, or that maybe, um, Julia, you mentioned, never actually went back down. The stress has actually been cumulative and it's been consistent for, for a number of years. It just kind of, at times, it escalates, then it comes back down, but you never really get to a true baseline because you're kind of always on edge waiting for the next kind of natural disaster or tasking or whatever is happening within our world at this point in time. So the anxiety tends to snowball when the worries start to pick up. So that's when the thoughts come in. So that's when it's the you know, what am I going to do? When are they going to be going? Where are they going to be going to? What's it going to be like? Are they going to be exposed to anything dangerous? And once that snowball starts, it's really difficult to actually stop that. And then we have like the actual behavior side of things. So what do I then do when I'm really anxious? So the brain actually hates the unknown. It is constantly seeking balance and homeostasis. So that's that we like to know what's happening and most of us like to have some sort of level of control around what's happening. So what our brain then tends to do is it tries to counteract all of that unknown with going into planning mode. So that's when there's the, okay, well, I need to organise the children. I need to, you know, get care for the kids. I need to sort support for myself. You know, what do I need to do with my own? If you're working, what do I need to do with, you know, my employment? Like those sorts of things. And the downside to the planning, like obviously there needs to be a level of planning given that, you know, someone that you rely upon and your defence partner is possibly going to be, you know, um, leaving you for a period of time. What can happen, and I think, Julia, you kind of expressed it really well, is that we then repress our emotions and we almost use the planning as a way of coping and distracting from the actual core emotions that we're going through at that point in time. It might be sadness, it might be fear. Haley, you mentioned, you know, being terrified, like they're pretty intense emotions. And if we haven't done the processing work when those emotions come up, then if we jump straight into the planning kind of side of things, we're then just burying them for a little bit longer. It may put our brain at ease to some extent going, all right, I have a plan you know, there's some sort of rational stability so the brain can kind of calm down a little bit. But then what you end up with is a bunch of unresolved emotions that can then kind of build up and build up over time. Yeah, because we do get to the point where, okay, we kind of know what's happening. We always never really know the actual plan with ADF. It can change and, you know, extend and we don't know the date that might be leaving or what they actually might be doing. But once we know that they actually are going to be involved or, or are going, we can kind of switch into, like you mentioned, Tanya, switch into that mode where, okay, well, I've thought of the plan of how I'm going to cope with that. And we just switch into managing one day at a time, one task at a time, whatever we need to do to get through the day. And it usually isn't until the end of the day when we're sitting at home by ourselves, where we start to process those emotions. But because we are usually flying solo, most of the time we kind of just go, okay, it's the next day. I just got to get through the next day. And we kind of do that over and over. And like you mentioned, Julia, you get to the stage where you're up and then a little bit down, up again, a little bit down. And then it has this impact where 
I got through the first three deployments okay, but why am I losing it on the fourth one? Because you get to that stage where you're just like, I can't do this like this and continue to do this, but it's the only way I know. So how do I get through any other way? I think there's a big thing for a lot of people that because you've done it once, and I think in our support networks, um, our extended family and our other immediate family members, be it our parents or close friends, they think that because we've done one deployment or we've done three deployments or this is the third time they've gone out on floods in five years, that it makes it easier that because we've done it once, we get through it again, we know what we're doing. But the thing that isn't accounted for in a belief like that is the current times, what's on your plate at that time, what your life looked like five years ago, three months ago, what it looks like today where you're at as an individual, where your relationship is at between you and your service member, if there's kids involved, where that relationship is at. So there's a whole lot of variables in a belief like that that are unfortunately not accounted for. And that's everything that doesn't make it easier for us to get through it because it's our fourth or fifth or sixth or tenth time. You can be a defence spouse for 20 years, but you're still going to find that you're having to cope in new ways that you have new unmet needs and that there are demands on you that you haven't seen before you've got to find a way to get through that and ultimately what you want to be doing is thriving not surviving but in a lot of cases what we end up in is survival mode so tanya how do you think we can once we come around to the fact that you know we're we're dealing with those thoughts and feelings like you mentioned how can we go into it and not push those thoughts and feelings aside and walk with those feelings or work through them while also trying to get a plan in place and, you know, trying to deal with the fact that, okay, this is happening and you're going tomorrow or whatever the case is. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that it's not that we shouldn't be planning at all because that does serve a purpose and that's part of the survival that, um, Julie, you just mentioned beautifully. It's, you know, we do want to learn how to thrive, but I think it's around knowing that time and place and knowing for each individual person what your patterns are around that. You know, are you someone that plans and as a result kind of pushes or oppresses kind of those feelings aside or you're someone that goes all right I know I'm feeling really scared I'm feeling kind of really stressed and anxious about this but I know right now I need to plan xyz but then at a later time and it might be like you mentioned you know it might be at night time once the kids are all in bed you have that kind of breather you take a seat and you do some of that self-reflective work and you go okay how am I feeling right now you might do a body scan you might go where am I feeling tension in my body right now okay is it in my shoulders am I feeling stressed am I feeling worried scared anxious what is that about who can I talk to about that so when I talk about feelings and how to kind of process feelings I try and keep it really simple it's acknowledge and identify your feelings it's then express those feelings both to yourself and then do I need to share this with someone else and that's the talking part of it so then you can also do almost like a bit of a self-care plan and how you're actually going to make sure that you're processing those emotions so it might be that you come to, um, you know, one of your community meetings. So like the um, the catch-ups and you've decided that you might share your emotions and your experiences with people that you know are actually going to validate your feelings. Or it might be that you are really close with your sister and they're someone that's going to really validate your feelings. So, 
And then you kind of can go back into the, well, how am I going to then cope? And that's some more long-term strategies. If we're talking about stress and anxiety, like I mentioned, the body scan, because a lot of those emotions also bring up physiological responses in our bodies, that kind of is held within the body. So many of us are pretty good at knowing how we're feeling and sometimes talking about it. Other times it's much harder but we don't, don't then do the body work, which is also what part of kind of calms us down. So we seek connection and hoping that that's kind of appropriate connection that you know is going to be supportive rather than kind of going to say your mum who you know might not be as supportive of your family's um, decisions and the decisions that the um, service member makes. So that's kind of, I guess, at a basic kind of level, how that you can make sure that you're going to process some of those emotions rather than. Nine out of 10 defence spouses wish they found out about Defence Bank sooner. Okay, I might've just made that up and they do sponsor my podcast, but I've checked them out and I think they're worth a look just for their banking app alone. It's award-winning and currently has a rating of 4.8 out of five in both the app and Google Play Store. It does everything a big bank app does with cool features like fast same-day payments, card alerts and controls, pin change functionality, savings roundup, spend tracker, the list goes on. Oh, and if you really want to go to a Defence Bank branch, you can. There are 33 on-base branches across Australia. And with many of their branch staff a defence spouse or partner, you'll be talking to someone who just gets it. Banking as a defence spouse doesn't have to be hard. For more info, visit defencebank.com.au. Falling into a planning mode and then just ignoring them or, you know, falling into those assumptions and beliefs that it should be easier. I should just be able to cope. And that kind of leads into something that you and I have talked about before, which is like that toxic positivity stuff where we can go from having those feelings and then you might, your brain might associate that with a bad experience where someone has said to you, well, you know what you signed up for kind of a thing and then you go okay well no I need to be positive or you might read some article on like gratitude and you go okay well I need to just be more grateful I need to be more positive but that's actually more harmful to your emotional well-being um, because you're actually ignoring the feelings that need to actually be processed. So aside from dealing with the situation planning for an ADF member going away, how do we kind of cope with the whole, you might be going, you might not be going, you got to be ready, pack a bag, ready to move within 24 hours, be on standby kind of thing. And then the call doesn't come for be on standby for the next day, be on standby for the next day. And you're just in this sort of limbo where you can't kind of count on the defence member because they could be going at any moment, but they're still home, but you're still having to go about your life like they aren't home because they're all up in the air. Hayley, Julia, how have you sort of coped with being in that standby mode in the past and the thoughts and feelings and I guess coping with all that that comes with because they're still there? I found that personally really difficult and I think that how I coped was probably an unhealthy way that probably most people do and that's to I I just shut off I really shut off so I think I'm mentally preparing and it's almost like well why don't you just go now why do we have to wait for you to go and I know that um, when I've spoken about this to people in the past their attitude was oh you should appreciate every last moment that they're here and you know value the time that you've got together and all those comments and that's been harder I think because you just want it to start because then it finishes 
quicker. <laughs> so the quicker he goes, the quicker he comes home. I don't want to delay that. I want it to happen now. So I, I really struggled with that. And I found myself distancing from my partner because I just was almost resentful. It sounds terrible that he was still there because I just wanted him to go so that he would come back already. Like that's even sort of the case when you know when they're being deployed and you know the date that they're leaving, but even more so when it's something that is out of the blue, like flood assist or COVID assist or all of those sorts of things. And especially when you start to hear rumblings in the media and things like that, and you think, okay, people are starting to say, well, they're going to have to call in the ADF kind of thing. And then once you hear that, you think, okay, well, who's going to be, is it going to be us? And you're sort of like in this limbo, like waiting for the call. Julia, how do you sort of process it when when you're in standby mode or or not sort of knowing whether your defence member is going to get caught up? I like to put the bag away so I don't have to look at it. I don't like the boots in the bag to sit in the hallway. Um, I don't like the constant reminder. But as Haley said, I find it difficult to process why they can't just go and we have to live in this constant state of flux between oh, I can go to bed again and I've got company for the night and then what does that look like in the morning? And I think you get resentful because you feel that your life is at their disposal. It's not just the member's life. So if that takes five days and you're cycling through that, you have then had four days before they leave on the fifth day where you feel like your life didn't mean anything those days. Those days were written off. And then you get resentful because that's four extra days where you could have squeezed something in, but you didn't know how far you could go. You didn't know when the text message or the call was coming through. So you ended up doing nothing. And I think that can be very hard as a defence family because of the transient nature of our lifestyle. We don't necessarily own the home. So there's not projects around the home that we can just fill that void with when they suddenly don't have to go. We actually have to proactively make plans and we might be in new communities at the time that this is happening. So there's a whole lot that goes into you being okay with sitting around at home versus not being okay with that. And I think it's easier if you can have something to then put both of your attention in. But again, that can be hard because if your hobbies don't align, like I like to restore furniture, it's not my husband's favourite hobby, especially if he's about to leave for an operation. So it's very, very difficult to manage All of those thoughts and feelings and those behind the scenes kind of stuff is what I guess the wider community doesn't see that goes into being a defence family and then that member going away on that operation or that flood assist or the last minute being tasked to do something, you know, states away, like you mentioned it's not like sometimes you can't just go, okay, well, I'm just going to catch up with my best friend on the weekend and I'll see my parents and, you know, I'll drop the kids off and, um, you know, all of those sorts of things where people would usually be like, okay, well, I'll call my village in. It's not necessarily that you have that village to call on, which makes it even harder and why you have to kind of feel like you need to fill that time and have plans and have things to occupy you because you don't have all of those, those normal things that people in their communities with those support networks would have. Tanya, how do people process being in standby mode? Because obviously, you know, Haley and Julia have both mentioned, and I know from personal experience, it can almost feel harder than them actually going and you can kind of disconnect from the defence member and the defence member can kind of disconnect from you as well. So you're just kind of both in limbo and it's 
not doing either of you any good. You just want it to start so it can hurry up and finish. Yeah, look, I can certainly relate as well, certainly to the the distancing side of things um, and even that level of resentment that can then lead to a lot of kind of emotional reactivity within both your relationship with, this, with your defence member as well as within your family system with children and things like that. Certainly I can relate to that at the moment. I think, Hayley, you mentioned about that kind of shutdown response you and that you kind of mentioned oh you know that it wasn't overly helpful I guess I'm here to encourage you to be really kind to yourself and that there's a reason why your brain is doing that and sometimes if we understand what's happening in our brain we can be a bit kinder to ourselves um, and understand ourselves and our defense members a little bit better but we're often very good at understanding the defense members and their mental health and you know why they're having such a hard time but then we don't always know why we are. So what tends to happen in the brain when we experience that prolonged stress is we go into the stress response, much like if you were witnessing or you were exposed to a traumatic event, you go into that fight, flight, freeze response. As you start to go, we have like, it's hard to use without a visual, but (laughs) bear with me. If you picture it like a window, so you've got your a space where or a window where your brain can actually tolerate a particular level of stress. What tends to happen is when you go into that fight flight response is you go outside that top part of the window and your brain goes into a different state. Then you have like underneath the window, which is the one that's always forgotten about. So the one at the top, the fight and flight, everyone is reasonably well versed in that. It's a bit more obvious, but we don't tend to acknowledge those that fall under the the bottom of that, which is more of that freeze kind of, and we call it the shutdown response. So when you're living in this state of constant anxiety, your brain is actually thinking that you're in danger because that possible disconnection from your partner, someone that you have hopefully a secure attachment to, does kind of represent impending isolation and impending change, but without really knowing when that's going to happen. So you lose that sense of power and control within your own life. And as human beings, we are designed to be really stressed out by that. So So instead of going into that kind of emotional reactivity and that kind of fight and flight response, it sounds like you and even um, Julia, you mentioned for yourself as well, and I can certainly relate, um, and Becky said the same thing, that going into that shutdown is how your brain is coping with that. It's that disconnecting because your brain is trying also to control when that's going to happen. So it's easier to just, if I just disconnect from my partner now than to deal with in a day or two days or three days when they might be going away. So there's a whole bunch of things that are happening, but yeah, certainly be kind to yourselves because it is a natural brain's response considering what you're going through. I think how to kind of cope with that, because like what you said, Beck, we don't kind of want yourself disconnecting and your defense partner disconnecting either, because if that happens too many times, that's going to have pretty negative kind of flow and effects to your relationship at some stage. The best thing that you can do, and I like Julia that you mentioned that you don't always have the same hobbies. I can totally relate there. Uh, And it may not be about hobbies. And, you know, I think we need to be really realistic and understand the expectations that we have on ourselves and that our defence member has on us as well. You know, it may be that we have to acknowledge that, say, for example, you know, that they've been, you know, they might have to leave in 12, 24 hours, whatever that time frame might be, to sit them down and go, look, I'm just going to be in survival mode for the next few days. This is really hard. I'm really stressed and I'm quite scared. I'm going to try my hardest not to disconnect from you like I normally do. But if you notice that I'm shutting down, can you do X, Y, Z and give them permission and tell them what you need from them? It might be that 
you know, just come and give me a hug, you know, because we know that if we're getting hugs, then we get that release of oxytocin and that's actually going to help in terms of protect you against things that are going to be harmful to your mental health. And I think just having that kind of language and that ability to really talk to your um, defence member about your experience. Now, obviously, that's going to be very individual depending on the nature of your relationship, you know, um, other individual factors, you know, and Julia, you did mention that, that, you know, every family system is different and every member within that family system is different as well. So even though the advice I'm giving, it might sound specific, it is just broad advice because it's going to be different for each individual person. The underlying theme there is that you've got to figure out what kind of communication style and, and how you guys communicate the best and verbalizing what your your needs are and defense members aren't always the best at doing that. Sometimes they've kind of been taught to be a certain way, but once you get to a certain point in your, your relationship and things haven't worked the ways that you've previously been doing it or, you know, by shutting each other out or, you know, disconnecting. And often you can see the defense member doing that before deployments and things like that, because, you know, they're just preparing themselves for going away. Um, And then we're the ones kind of like trying to pull them back because we want those last couple of good days kind of thing. But it's really about figuring out how you best communicate and how to tell each other, I guess, you know, because acts of service to me, my husband going, I've made sure that this is going to be sorted for the next month or whatever, without me having to ask is like a huge deal for me and makes me feel loved and cared for. And that he's thought about something that will help me out kind of thing, because he would know that I'm dealing with this, this, and this kind of thing in the background. That means more to me than him buying me a bunch of flowers before he goes kind of thing but it's going to be different for every couple and the way that they show love and communicate and all of that sort of thing Haley and Julia how did you um, in your relationships figure out how to like communicate well and not have those like Tanya mentioned if you disconnect too many times form those resentments or have it impact your relationship I think um, what Tanya said is that we communicate a lot and I think communication is the key if you, you feel yourself shutting off, you just need to make that extra effort to talk through the problems. And, you know, that can be really daunting. At times it's not easy. Yeah, but I think just we just we communicate a lot and that's really part of the strength of our relationship is that because we can communicate about anything as uncomfortable as it is, I think you just need to talk about it, unfortunately, as much as it's really uncomfortable times, just have to chat. Yeah, because I guess, Julia, we've got to remember that neither one of us are mind readers. And sometimes when early on in the relationship, your reaction to them not knowing what you need or not communicating properly is that maybe you have different reactions and don't communicate, shut them out or the silent treatment or whatever, or get angry or rage clean. I still rage clean sometimes. You would have different responses. And I guess once you figure out what works best for you, obviously that can only be a good thing. But Julia, how have you and Jai kind of come around to figuring out how to best navigate defence life and communication? I think it is making sure that you can do it openly and transparently. So for us, there's no topic in the world that's off limits, whether that's how you're feeling. I'm not feeling good about this operation. I'm not in a good headspace. I'm angry. Whatever that is, we can say it. For us, it really goes back to 
that's what the foundation of our relationship was because we met 10 days before a deployment. So we had to learn how critical communication was. So we got to do a lot of foundation work. And then we obviously had to navigate coming back to on the other side of that. So for anyone that hasn't had an experience like that, I would think that my advice would be to do a lot of foundation work there. And, you know, sometimes, and don't be ashamed if that means we need to reach out and get a couples counsellor involved in helping us do that because what they are there to do is help guide you through those questions and quite often what they can do is give you a worksheet to work through that on. I believe there's also one of those on the DMFS website that you can have a look at if you need some guidance in doing that. And then the second piece of advice I would have for people was, as you mentioned, Beck, getting to know each other's love languages. So for Jai and I, we both have the same love language and it's acts of service as well. So for him, his acts of service is knowing that when he walks out the door for whatever that operation is, that everything here is covered. So he's worked really hard to set everything up. Um, We have a lot of our bills and everything on direct debit. So then that domestic load doesn't fall on me when he's gone. Before the final plan and the orders have been finalised, in the meantime, when something is happening like a natural disaster or world events like the withdrawal in Afghanistan or what's happening in Ukraine, we're usually hearing updates and seeing media coverage of whatever is happening. And, you know, that can be 24-7 constant if it's something that is pretty huge and something that's significant for a lot of people. And we might not know whether our defence member is going or they might be on standby, but we're seeing all this coverage and we're we're more informed than ever, but that might not be the best thing because then we're seeing what type of danger or what kind of operation they're going to be going into. How have you navigated being able to see what's going on and the potential dangers or, or where they're going before they've even arrived there or before they've even had the call? I guess we've just listened to our bodies. So if it gets too much, we have definitely had no TV time and we've turned off the TV and social media and I think that's really healthy and something that should be encouraged you just need to listen to your body and if you're getting too anxious and it's becoming too much you know you just need to disconnect at the same time I'm someone who needs to know every detail Um, so I struggle with that and that's really hard because you want to know what's going on You, you want to know all those details you want to make sure that your partner is safe and that they're okay and that they're coping and that you know they're going to come home soon and you want to know everything that's going on but at the same time it can be really damaging and I guess also we're really aware that we've got two young children at home so you know we put on the news in the morning absolutely but we've also got to be aware that the news um, can be quite unfiltered and that those children are seeing those images they're going to have you know there's potential that they can have a really negative impact on those kids especially when they see people in uniform so So I think it's a really, really hard balance. And look, we definitely haven't perfected it. You know, there's definitely been times where you watch what's going on with the Ukraine and floods and um, and these horrible, you know, horrible situations around the world. And it's devastating. But yeah, you've just, I think your mental health at home is the most important at that point in time because, you know, a lot of the time you're looking after other people, your children. So you just need to make sure your family's secure. I think every family is going to deal with that differently. You know, you just need to find what that balance is for your family and what works. So some other things there are to be aware around the issue of while there's information out there and social media, 
just reminding yourself and those who are asking you any questions around the misinformation that's there. Unfortunately, what misinformation does is it puts the incorrect expectation and idea out there of what the ADF can do, that we can do it all, that we have a large ADF, but it also reinforces that our families are the epitome of resilience. And if that is not the case for you, then finding a way to be able to communicate what your needs are to people or reaching out to support at that time. The issue isn't people asking questions. It's the way that they ask them that causes the hurt to us because quite often they're asking questions in a way to present a narrative and push an agenda. For some people, more information makes them feel at ease and that little bit more in control. I know for me that I like to have all the information so I can figure out worst case scenario in my head and then anything that doesn't happen that's as bad as that, then I'm okay because I've kind of gone, well, at least it wasn't that kind of thing. Whereas other people might need to pull back on, you know, what they expose themselves to, the conversations they have with people. How do we kind of get that balance with social media and being more informed but sometimes over over informed I think everyone's covered that really well I think the word boundaries is certainly the first thing that I go to as well you also have to understand yourself so for you Beck you know that you need I guess a specific level of information or knowledge to then be able to go to plan or prepare your brain for worst case scenario and then that doesn't happen that's part of that kind of surviving in an anxious state And for many people, it would lead to more anxiety and then some sort of relief, but then you still have to tolerate all that anxiety to get to that relief. So for some people like yourself, that's probably fine, but for others, they may think that they need all the information, but it's not until you actually reflect and actually reconnect with yourself to know, oh, actually, I think I'm just getting obsessive about it because I just, I need to know, I need to know, but that's actually contributing to a lot more stress and anxiety that's not necessarily needed at that point in time. A couple of things around, yeah, social media and the images that are being kind of portrayed on certainly mainstream media is that us as defence spouses are also at greater risk of vicarious trauma. So, and I think you did at that um, podcast on moral hurt, I believe. But even witnessing those images, everyone within society is at risk of developing a traumatic response to even just viewing those things. We have the added layer of it being closer to home and being more relatable to then the person we love and care about going into that situation. So there's that added kind of overlay there that puts us at even more risk. So we can actually end up with post-traumatic kind of symptoms where you might be having nightmares about your partner going in to a particular situation. You know, it might be that, yeah, you're, you've seen an image that day of, you know, the missile attack in Ukraine and then you have a, a nightmare that night and your partner is there, even though that hasn't, hasn't actually happened. And then all of a sudden you're having disturbed sleep. Um, you're then starting to have, you know, alterations in your mood. You might be becoming more irritable. You might be more anxious, scared, those sorts of things. So, and also I think being mindful of when you're viewing those things. So Haley mentioned watching just the news in the morning. That's probably a better time to watch the news than say at the end of the day when you're likely to still be processing some of those images and messages that you're receiving through the media and then you're going to sleep on those things. And also, like you said, the impact on the household as well if they're the images that are being shown. The thing with, with social media and a lot of mainstream media outlets as well is that we all have this thing called confirmation bias 
I so hope you are able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarylife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 